The king is dead, my friends, and we shall never see his like again. Join us today as we pay tribute to the late Sir Sean Connery. Agents of Cool, uh, where today uh, we have the solemn duty of adding the most grievously painful star to the memorial wall yet, as we pay tribute to the late Sir Sean Connery. Um, we are going to do this, uh, and again, kind of like we did with Dame Diana last time, um, the, some, what we do here seems inadequate somehow to the uh, legend that we're talking about today. Uh, if you're listening to this show, you know who Sir Sean Connery uh, was. You've seen his movies. Uh, if you're listening to this show, again, uh, you, lo you loved the guy, uh, and that's what we're here for, and that's fine. Um, this is what we do. This is what we do. So we're going to pay tribute to Sir Sean Connery today uh, by reviewing the 1967 classic You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice is a uh, one of those 1960s uh, foreign films that comments on Western imperialism in a post-war landscape by uh, through a storyline about a six foot two Scottish barbarian murdering his way through half of Japan. No, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm getting something. I'm getting something on my earpiece here. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. That's not our show at all. We do the show about Bond movies, and we don't talk about <laughs> we don't talk about uh, Western cultural imperialism in a post war landscape whatsoever. That's not what we do. We do ninjas and volcano layers around here. All right. So I am your grumpy number six, Eric, joined as always by... Stacy. You Only Live Twice was released the summer of 1967. It was the fifth James Bond movie. Uh, it was ostensibly John Connery's last James Bond movie. Uh, he announced during the filming that uh, he was leaving the part for two reasons. Uh, one reason, he was starting to feel a little bit overshadowed by all of the stunts and the special effects and the gadgetry and all that kind of stuff. And number two, he was feeling a little hard done by by uh, Cubby and Harry, Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, the producers. He was feeling as though maybe they were making a lot of money off of his sweat, and maybe he wasn't seeing a fair piece of that. Was he right about that? Eh, probably. You got to remember that, like, the leading cause of lawsuits in Los Angeles is producers. So did he want a bigger piece of the pie that he wasn't getting? Possibly. So you only lived twice, 1967. Uh, this was based on Ian Fleming's next-to-last James Bond novel. Uh, you Only Live Twice, the book, was written after On Her Majesty's Secret Service. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which, spoiler alert, concludes with the death of Tracy Bond, Bond's wife. You Only Live Twice opens with Bond hunting Blofeld in Japan uh, to exact his revenge. After Thunderball, they were going to make On Her Majesty's Secret Service... But the weather wasn't cooperating. They needed like a X amount of snow up in the Alps to do that one, right? They weren't getting it. So they pivoted. So they pivoted and they did You Only Live Twice. I want to say that uh, I I'm watching uh, the DVD box sets from the mid-2000s or so, which have a, a fine, fine set of behind-the-scenes documentaries and uh, extras and archival stuff on them. And I strongly recommend that you uh, watch these. Now, I'm, I'm getting some of my information from these, that um, that they were doing a location scouting in Japan. Fleming's book took place in Japan, so they go to Japan to start location scouting. And they're having trouble finding the kinds of things that Fleming was talking about in the book. 
so they um, they're not finding what they're looking for. They don't know what they're going to do, and then they finally go over like an area of like a volcanic, like a volcanic, a whole area of volcanoes and things. And uh, they're in a helicopter. And it's Cubby Broccoli and it's Harry Saltzman and Ken Adam, the production designer, is there. And like a light bulb goes off over Albert R. Broccoli's head, and he looks at Ken Adam and he says something to the effect of, "Do you think we could like uh, like build a set that's like like maybe the villain lives inside, like maybe lives inside one of these volcanoes?" And Ken Adam says, "Sure, I can do that." So um, and that's where that was the hook they had that they started building the whole project around. Yeah. So uh, I, I gotta tell you, this movie is uh, what you call it, wall to wall awesome. Uh, this movie, they they mostly chuck out the book. It takes place in Japan. Tiger Knock is in it. Blofeld's in it. That's basically it. I, I you think know, uh, the, this is kind of the first time they ever really built a whole movie with very little Fleming and kind of built it on their own. The, okay, the quote I saw that uh, from Roald Dahl was that the book was essentially unfilmable or there was really nothing there was basically there was nothing he could do with it to make a movie script out of it uh, uh, it's been some time since I've read it it's basically uh, it's almost a travel log that is actually oh what was it there was a quote yeah that was oh, there's always a quote to that effect it's uh yeah or he yeah he compared it to it yeah Rawl, Dahl compared it to a travel log I think in an interview that's a lot of it. Although we have a mutual friend who still kind of really likes the book and wish they had done a better job of of, of being truer to the source material. But that, all, all that said, this movie is the really seriously leans into the fantasy of Bond. Um, there's very little in the way of real espionage going on here. This is straight up over the top James Bond volcano lair fantasy area. Right, right. literally the origin of the volcano. Yeah, th th this is key. When you look at this and then look at Goldeneye, and you think, well, that's okay, but they did it better in Goldeneye. One, Goldeneye was made like what thirty years later. Nineteen ninety-five. Okay, so yes, uh, almost almost thirty years, years almost thirty years later. But two, any time you see a lair in a volcano, be it in The Incredibles, be it anything, this is the Ur. Volcano Lair. This is the, hey, what if Spectre has a base hidden inside an inactive volcano? I'm yeah. pretty sure the phony volcano, the, the, you know, the, what was it, the, uh, was it the imposter volcano or the, uh, the I forget, the, the, the Johnny Quest we did. I think that postdates this. Again, Volcano uh, I think, Base. I think that came first. Did it? Hmm. Johnny Quest was on a couple of years before You Only Live Twice. Huh, Okay. But at least for film, though, this is your Ur volcano base with the sliding. I mean, okay, yeah. they were kind of. Well, actually, that was a that was a volcano, but that was actually. I mean, this is like the hollowed out volcano with the the fake lid and everything. I think this is the. You know, I mean, because even like uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, it's in a volcanic crater. It's not inside a volcano, right? You know, comparing this uh, volcano base to any other volcano base is not fair because you have the order wrong. So yeah. th this yeah. is key, and there's so much in this movie that. Uh, essentially, you know, you look at it and like, well, you know, you see, well, this looks like a lot of stuff from, you know, you see a lot of Bond movies. In some cases, a lot of this was the first time you saw some of this stuff. In a lot of ways, this is kind of the Bond movie. Now, we, we've talked about Sean's Bond movies before. We talked about Goldfinger, which is, I think, arguably the best Sean Connery Bond I, movie. I think of the... Uh, I, probably his best performance is Bond. I still think Goldfinger um, is the Bond movie. If you want to talk about, if you want to talk about the early Bond, I mean, I still think yeah. Goldfinger is the Bond movie. Everything else is trying to live uh, up to that point, you know. Now, Sean was his, Sean was was never better than he was in Goldfinger. Now, I will also say we've also reviewed Never Say Never Again, 
which has its problems as a movie, but Sean was terrific in it. So technically, if we're talking about, you know, if we hadn't done either of those, uh, if you want a really good Sean Connery, and, and we all do, because we all love Sean, that's why we're here. Uh, if you want a really good Connery performance, you're going to want to look at Goldfinger, and you're going to want to look at Never Say Never Again. But yeah, say whatever you want about the movie, but Sean is utterly charming and funny and dangerous and everything you could possibly want about Sean Connery. Uh, we talked about Thunderball, uh, and Sean's good in that, but I think that's where some of his dissatisfaction with playing the part was starting to creep in. And, and, all, and in all fairness, and in all fairness uh, if he feels overshadowed by the sets and the technology and the action and the special effects, I mean, who wouldn't feel overshadowed by the volcano base, for God's sake? So um, I, I suppose in the end, I kind of I see his point. I see I see Sean's point that maybe he was being over outweighed by things, maybe he or overshadowed by things, maybe he wasn't being you know paid his fair wage for it, and he was probably right about those things. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that he's still really good and you only live twice, and it's still a hugely entertaining movie. Okay, so we were in Thunderball. There's the extended sequence where they're flying the helicopter around looking at stuff, and it, we've, it yeah. felt kind of like, well, by golly, we paid for the helicopter. We're going to use every bit of fun- helicopter footage we got because the helicopter cost us this much, right? Mm-hmm. There, there, there's right. a there's a couple bits and pieces where it seems like I, you kind of got that vibe. I, there's some extended bits where I'm not sure we strictly needed the extended sequences we got for some of the stuff. I'm not strictly sure the marriage sequence was... Well, they, apparently they just went all in on, we're going to show Japanese customs, as well as we're going to show off our helicopter. Yeah, so it just felt like, I mean, like, I mean, the helicopter sequence in this one was super taut. It's like they had figured out how to do helicopters, and the, you know, the, the, the dogfight with the little auto gyro and everything is really nice, but there's just a bunch of stuff that just, to me, seems a little, not quite meandering, but it's just like, I'm not strictly sure we needed entire wedding sequence for example now and and that and that i disagree because uh because one of the reasons i think you watch bond movies is to go places and see things that you don't necessarily see in your daily life i mean air travel now is less expensive and more accessible than it was 40 or 50 years ago but even now it's going to be difficult it would be incredibly difficult for me to like board a plane fly to japan and see some of the locations and the customs and the traditions you see and you only live twice I mean, you had the the Junkaroo in Thunderball, and you had um, like the Gypsy Camp in From Russia with Love, and the tunnels underneath uh, Istanbul. And part of the reason you watch these movies is to see these kinds of places and these kinds of things. So in that, in that, I disagree with you. But you know, I, uh, whatever. I mean, you had Ninja Camp, and you had the wedding. You probably could have stood to trim those a little bit, and I don't think it would have materially affected the flow of the movie. Now, I did find it, you know, now admittedly, I did find out something about Ninja Camp that I had never known until doing a little research prior to this, that apparently, according to the Wikipedia article, apparently they were scheduled to fly out uh, of Japan, the Salzman and Broccoli and uh, the director and I think one of the uh, Adams, I think, were in Japan, and they were scheduled to fly out, and they got a chance to get a ninja demonstration, so they stayed over. Which means the flight they, they did not get on the flight they were scheduled to take, which crashed 25 minutes after takeoff with the loss of all aboard. Yeah, I can confirm that. They talked about that on the DVD extras. Yeah. So at like that the whole bunch, like the whole the whole production staff almost died. Yeah. So at that point, I'm realizing I'm like, oh, at that point, I could just sort of see them saying, "We're putting all the ninjas in, all the ninja footage, all the ninjas, all ninjas all the time. We were saved by ninjas." <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Um, so is this basically the first American movie to seriously feature ninjas? Because this is 1967, way before the big ninja craze. I'm not aware of anything that comes before this. I mean, everybody. I think everybody remembers the big West, uh, not the the big ninja craze of the early '80s that was kind yeah. of driven by canon movies like Enter the Ninja and stuff like that. So I think right. we all remember those. I, I don't know of anything coming before you only live twice. So in a mm. sense, okay, that's kind of interesting because like, you know, so you appreciate you had the big, you know, you know, you had all the, the big inrush of, you know, Kung Fu movies, right? All right. We, everybody, you know, everybody in the brothers is doing Kung Fu movie. Literally everyone is Kung Fu fighting, right? Okay. Boom. Great. What, the, what, 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 what can we do to differentiate our martial arts movie from all the other Kung Fu movies? Ninjas. So, in, but in that, so, but if this was the first, and I, this may be, because this is well, I mean, this is well before the 70s, you know, Kung Fu glut. Yeah. This, in a sense, this is James Bond just going, finding some, you know, going just someplace that really you hadn't seen cinema go before. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't expect, uh, Tanaka didn't expect Bond, and the filmmakers did not expect the audience to know what a ninja was. Oh, that's a good point. We have something better than Commandos. What? Ninjas. Yeah. Ninjas, Bonsai. And Bonsan <laughs> is like, what? <laughs> and then they mostly do like samurai moves, as far as I can tell, or I, break boards, which is pretty generic and a, martial arts. And ice, too. Part. Big thing of ice. I mean. Oh, the knocking your head through ice was pretty sweet, yes. But. Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, you had, I mean, you had like the little, you had the little, you had the little gray coveralls and the little mask. You had the little, you know, the little throwing star thing. So, I mean, you kind of had, oh, I mean, you, great. yeah, I mean, you had proto, I mean, this was basically proto cinematic ninjas. And they even, because there were a lot of them, they they tended to die. Mm. Yes, yes, th- yeah. And this is basically the first example of the inverse rule of ninja. Also, you know, was it the yeah. you know in, the 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 inverse you know ninja you know, effectiveness is inversely proportional to the number of ninjas. One hundred ninjas yeah. die in droves. One ninja, you know, goes yeah. through the entire facility like the Terminator. Uh-huh. So but they found every ninja in Japan, and so a lot of them got machine guns. But the ones that survived, by golly, by the 80s, they were, you know, they were, you know. Oh, God, I can just see that now. That's right. Okay, every canon film's ninja, you know, movie ninja was, you know, some of them had to be survivors and veterans of the assault on the volcano lair. That, that's just, okay, that's got to be canon now for canon movies. Canon, canon. Yep. Actually, I'll, I'll go you one better. You figure the Arashikage clan was involved in the assault on the Spectre volcano? Oh, of Ooh. course! Of course, and probably, I mean, that's obviously how they got in bed with Cobra later, because, you know, Spectre realized, well, wait a minute, we need our own ninjas, damn it. <laughs> we cannot allow it here. This organization, you know, punishes failure with instantaneous death, blam, and we will not allow a ninja gap to persist. <laughs> you, Hitchman number 63, ninjas, now! <laughs> now, what was, what was the name of the Turtles Ninja Master? Oh, um, Splinter? Splinter? No, his his human name before he was Splinter. No, 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 oh, no, 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 no. Uh, no he, actually, I take I take that I take that back. There's different versions of this. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no, no. Canonically, he, no. Okay, yeah. The cartoon, you know, in the cartoon, it was yeah. No, no. It in in the comic book, he was you know. The original the original black black comic Splinter was actually a mutated rat. In but the, studied, in the most recent version of the, the 2012 series that uh, me and the kid watched so much, Amato Yoshi. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Hamato Yoshi was Splinter, and the Shredder was Oruku Sakai. So you so, figure they got to be there too. My brother and I, um, we my, my family got to HBO in roughly the early 1980s, and uh, I want to say one or two maybe. And we watched. There were certain movies we watched um, to the end whenever we saw them on HBO. 
And You Only Live Twice is one of those movies. Uh, it, it just kind of, this is one of those movies where every shot and every audio cue and every line of dialogue is just kind of burned into your cortex, right? And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. This is one of these things where it's just, a, a, this one never gets old. This one never gets old. And I've got some very fond memories going back in time of, of watching this. Shall we begin? It's available on streaming for Amazon for those of you that don't have it in their collection. Weirdly, we don't have it in our collection. Uh, so I, I, I do plan to remedy that because, again, it's not it's, – it's out there. It's easy to get. It's, wor- it's, it, it's worth four bucks to go see. I'm going to say that up front because I've got some parts I'm going to be maybe a little more critical. Uh, you know, I have, I have some criticisms to direct at. But, you know, overall, it, you're I mean, better off all, seeing it than not seeing it. You're already oh, against I'm, most racist James Bond movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a hard time seeing this movie as racist at all. Uh, yeah. We're gonna get to that, yeah. so let's begin. Gun sight opening. Oh crap, do we have to. Oh, wait, do we have to do. Wait, do we have to pay rights now for that? Shoot. Uh, you know what? If they're actually listening to us closely enough to make us pay for that. I'll consider that a win. Well, wait, yeah, okay, um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, Fair, yeah, for review and criticism. So we open in space, and I think it's common knowledge that uh, when you see space in a Bond movie, it's going to be a good one. Uh, so we see I, an orbiting that, American that, spacecraft. Entertaining one, yes, but that we haven't gotten the Moonraker yet, have we? No, no. we're still working on our Rogers. Okay, sequence. yeah, yeah, okay. Anyway, but yes, we open in space. We we see an uh, an American spacecraft. It's uh the the uh, the mission controller says it's like a it's Jupiter sixteen. Yep. Now this and, is a Gemini uh, capsule, kids. It. It's a Gemini capsule, and I knew that when I was ten, and I know that now. Uh, I was a see because back in the eighties, I was a big space wonk too. I read liter- literally every single book about the American space program in my elementary, middle school, and the county library when I was a kid, and I knew when I was ten that was a Gemini capsule. And I know it now, but we're gonna let that slide. Did you did you go did you go to the did you go to the Southern Sol- Britannica and just slip to the Apollo section, which had like just the wonderful little you know the entire little mission architecture and everything? I'm you sure know, I did. I mean, cause I, there was I there was a Time Life books on that. And I just remember just looking over those just lovingly of just all the little yeah. Because you know we we missed the moon landing, kids. We were not really sapient. I, I didn't exist yet. I wasn't born until two years after Apollo yeah. 11. And we're um, in you, so. Yeah, so. <sighs> we got the so space Jupiter, Jupiter 16, American space mission. Um, guy does a spacewalk, right? And he's talking to mission control. And then, uh, and then another spacecraft is closing on them rapidly. And this thing, like the jaws of this spacecraft begin to open up, right? As if it's going to eat or consume American ship. And the guy who's spacewalking is like, crap, 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 crap. But he doesn't get back in the capsule in time. And thus, in the like, the heavy steel jaws of the, of the, uh, of the closing ship close around the Jupiter mission capsule, cutting the line, the EVA line. And an American astronaut drifts off into space to freeze to death and burn up on reentry. And, uh, ooh, it's a very macabre. There's the occasional bit of something quite dark in this movie, and it's yeah. one of the things I like about it. There's some genuinely scary things in here. One thing about the audio design on that is really effective is because the music kind of swells and swells and swells, and you hear the, the increasing 
uh, the increasing panic and concern in the voice from Capcom. They don't say Capcom. They say Capcom. I'm not sure why. No, that's an accent thing or you know, portmanteau of, of Cape Canaveral and Capcom. But and you know, you hear the the, the increasing pan, you know the increasing concern and panic in the astronaut's voice, and you know, as the you know the the ship closes around and they're and then it just cuts, just dead silence when the door closes and it cuts that line. It's just it's it's actually remarkable. It's 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 a, it's a simple little thing, but it's remark you know it's remarkably effective for just getting across. And well, he's dead. So we cut to um, a meeting of diplomats. You have a table full of American diplomats, and you have a table full of Russian dem- dip- diplomats, and you have a table full of British diplomats inside a geodesic to dome. That appears to be someplace cold. It's it's a it's a so it's a radar installation in Norway. It's actually still in service. Ah. Uh, so it's, it's essentially the radar dome. The radar dish is inside. You know, is normally inside that dome. Uh, and it protects it from the wind and the elements and such. Um, and the, the the staging is nice because the, the British table is literally right between the Americans and the Russians who are yelling at each other about this rocket that got Yeah, you get the impression that he's there to keep them from going over the table at each other. So uh, what happens is the Americans think the Russians did it. Uh, the Russians deny this. They are a they, peace-loving people. The world knows we are a peace-loving people. And you know he's full of crap, but we also know the Russians didn't do it. Now, the, the, the British in the middle are trying to calm everybody down so we don't have World War III. And the British think that, uh, that, the, that the, the projectile, the missile, landed somewhere in the area of the Sea of Japan. And they mentioned that they've already got, uh, they've already got you know, people looking into this. Yeah. Our best man is already on it. So we cut from there to... Their best uh, man. Naturally this, is, naturally, this is the part where we cut to uh, Sean Connery making out with a lady. Right. Their best man so is, is on it. I mean, that, that, we, we knew this. Lot, we we knew where this was going as soon as the British diplomat opened his mouth, right? I mean, yeah. and that, that, that's one of the reasons we love it. It's our man. It's the guy. The reason we're all here today, the guy that helped found the the, the, the guy without whom there would not be the '60s spy genre or this podcast. Sean Connery. Or he wasn't a sir yet, mm. and he's uh, making out with uh, a Chinese girl named Ling, and uh, yeah, and here we are. And, he, and so, um, and Ling seems to be uh, somewhat duplicitous because uh, she presses a, she gets out of bed, presses a button on the wall. The bed slams back into the wall, and gunmen come in, machine gun the bottom of the bed, and leave. And a couple of minutes later, uh, uh, colonial British police come in, uh, lower the bed, and there's Bond, blood on the sheets, dead in action. And one of the British colonial officers looks straight at the camera and says, "You would have wanted it this way." <laughs> now, interesting tidbit of that scene, Stacy found out. Uh, yes, uh, you can't tell because of the lack of beard, but one of those cops is Anthony Ainley, the second master from Doctor Who. Oh, you're kidding! I'm not. Oh, that's cool. And, and you know, for, for all we know, that could be the master. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So we roll into the we roll into the theme song. Uh, sung by Nancy Sinatra, You Only Live Twice. We've got a great Nancy Sinatra theme song, and we've got uh, another wonderful Maurice Binder, Maurice Binder title sequence. Um, and then we cut to what I, what I assume is uh, we get a couple of interesting surprises in the uh, in the we get an interesting surprise in the credits. We find out that Roald Dahl uh, wrote the screenplay for this movie. So uh, James and the Giant Peach, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Roald Dahl. 
wrote a James Bond movie. But this... like, much like uh, Ian Fleming, he was at, he actually was a British agent during World War II. He was he literally, in fact, he did the James Bond thing. He literally came over here and seduced the wives of congressmen to get us into the war. Yep. So uh, maybe that Mr. Dahl knows knows of what he speaks. Uh, and and I think I think uh, after we watch this movie, his fine sense of the surreal. Yeah, I, th I think his fine. You can kind of see his fine sense of the surreal in, in throughout uh, woven throughout this movie. So then we go to uh, what I assume is Hong Kong Harbor, and uh, where we see um, a funeral at sea. I mean, they're burying Bond is a naval commander, so they're burying him at sea. His body goes into the ocean, sinks to the bottom, where it is promptly retrieved by uh, British divers taken into a submarine, and they, they cut the shroud open, and of course it's Bond and he's alive, right? Right. Well, you don't necessarily, know, they they're, you don't necessarily know they're British divers to begin with. They don't have any insignia, so it's like James Bond is dead, and there's, you know, somebody watching him with binoculars with the newspaper there, who's obviously just, you know, apparently making sure, yep, is he really dead? Are they really tossing him in the... And then frogmen come to get the body. Yes, but we don't, we, yeah, we don't know they're British yet. Um, right. Oh, fun factoid about that scene, the ship it was winter on that ship they shot when they shot it, but they're having to wear their tropical uniforms because it's supposed to because it's supposed Ooh. to be in. So and it apparently took several you know so they're basically wearing their tropical uniforms in the dead of winter on the deck of the ship and it took several takes because the body did not want to sink right. Ooh, yeah. So they get him on the sub, open him up. And he's got like a, a tank of air, and they take the the breather out of his mouth. And he says, "You know, something like permission to come aboard, Captain." And there's Bond. He's in his naval commander uniform because you know buried in uniform. And he you know hops up fresh as a daisy, and uh, he proceeds into the submarine. And we find out that uh, that Money Penny and M are on the submarine, and they apparently have their entire offices transported to this submarine because there's Penny with the hat rack at her desk. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's in a naval uniform, which makes me wonder if maybe uh, didn't have some military rank that we, just like Bond was a commander in the Navy, maybe Penny had a rank in the Navy too. And we know that M, that was Admiral Miles Messerby, so he has, you know, a rank in the Navy. Mm -hmm. So uh, he, you know, flirts with Money Penny like he usually does and then goes in to talk to M. And it's M's office on a submarine. And uh, and uh, basically, we get the brief that there's this missile, and the Russians are pissed, and the Americans are pissed. And uh, he says, "This is the big one, 007." And he's basically got 20 days till the next American launch to figure out what's going on with this uh, missile landing in the Sea of Japan, or we may be staring down World War III. And we faked his death. We faked Bond's death to give him some breathing room to maybe, if his enemies think he's dead, then they won't necessarily be looking for him. Which is why we just went through all this rigmarole with. Um, you know, make him with, the, with his obituary in the newspapers and whatnot. And then they take Bond, they take a Bond, put him in a wetsuit, and launch him like a torpedo from the submarine. One thing I did, I did love how M's office on the submarine has the wood paneling and all the artwork and everything. Oh yeah, and that's that's one of the things I really love about this movie is it's not exactly campy, but it is a little tongue in cheek. You know, we're leaning into the fantasy here. This is not meant to be a John Le Carre movie. This is not uh, Len Dighton. This is we're, we're, this is the fantasy of it, and I think that's one of the things I still like about it. So, um, and I really like the symbolism of you know Bond is like a human torpedo being fired from this submarine at the enemies of freedom, um, and he gets out and he walks up on the shores of Japan, and you know heads into uh, and heads in. His contact, 
His contact is at a sumo wrestling match. So they go in, and he meets a couple of sumo, and uh, we see angles on sumo that we don't want to see. So he goes into the sumo match and uh, sits down, starts watching, and he's approached by a uh, lovely young Japanese woman. Uh, We find out later her name's Aki. So he's approached by Aki and uh, says, uh, and they trade the code word that Moneypenny gave him earlier to wit, I love you. And he says, I love you. And she says, I have a car. (laughs) And all of a sudden, this is kind of how you figure most of Sean Connery's conversations go, right? So technically, technically, she is there to take him to see his contact in Japan, a British agent named Anderson. Um, His first name, his first name isn't called out loud in the movie. His first name is Dicko. Dicko. Dicko Anderson. Uh, You know, do with that what you will. So she takes him to see uh, Henderson. Uh, some people recognize Henderson from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. The actor Charles Gray. Mom gets, starts getting a little information from Henderson Guy, who is an Englishman who has been living in Japan for decades. And he's talking to Bond in there, uh, trading information. And then Henderson walks over, stands by one of the walls, and his face suddenly goes blank in the middle of a sentence. And Bond rushes over to him, and Henderson falls forward, and there's a knife in his back, and he's dead. Bond uh, chases down the assassin. Bond chases down the assassin and uh, 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 over, overpowers him and then puts on the assassin's shoes and his trench coat and his hat and his, uh, his mask, right? And the mask doesn't seem out of place at all after 2020, man. I mean, yeah, just like... yeah. after watching, we watched, I watched this with the, the wife and the kid yesterday and we thought it was hilarious. Look, you, you're putting on a used mask? Are you crazy? <laughs> You've got to, uh, some of the guy was just wearing that mask. That's nasty. Don't do that. So he puts on the guy's face mask, and then he pretends to be wounded. Yeah, sometimes manages by apparently pretending to be almost dead to not be evaluated in any way until they take him back to well, where they came from. Yeah, that's yeah. So I mean, you, know, you can buy. You know, he gets yeah, he gets in the car and he's just groaning like obviously you know he just went to kill somebody who's seen James Bond. So you know maybe he's in a bad way, and you know the driver just smartly just takes off because okay. He's not, you know, this is not the time to do first aid after you just stab somebody, right? It's fact, he apparently carries it all the way into the office. Right, right, right. They, get, they get to Osato Chemical and Engineering, and the dude just man-packs him into the the lobby and sets him on a couch. Now, at this point, I find it, I do find it difficult to believe, even though this guy is felt like a wrestler, and he doesn't, wow, this guy I'm carrying seems like a head taller and about two stone heavier than he did when we started. Um... So anyway, we get, we get up to Osato. We get up to the office in the chemical, the head office in the chemical building, and then they, they, they pull down the mask and, oh my God, you're Scottish! Uh, and, and then Bond uh, and I proceed to try to hit each other with couches. Yeah, they're, they're, they're literally picking up everything they can find in the office to and beat. Then a computer comes in somehow because it's Japan. I think there's a there's like a sword or something. So there's some kind of sword decoration that gets grabbed at some point, and like Bond hits it with the sword, and the guy you know the sword in the scabbard, and the guy kind of grabs it, and then takes the sword out of the scabbard, and you know tries to tries to carve Bond up with the sword. Sir, hits him over the head with the statue, which breaks. He puts the statue on the pedestal, like no one's gonna notice. Shoves this guy in like the drink cupboard. The wet bar. There's a wet bar. There's a wet bar behind a stainless steel. There's a web right. right behind the still door in the office. And then notices that there's a safe that is not... So he breaks it, and he's got a gadget on him, of course, that helps him break into the safe. 
<laughs> this gadget has not been previously introduced by Q because we will not see Q for a while. He just has a fairly realistic looking, maybe, little safe cracking gadget. So he breaks into the safe in the office. He gets the combination, but the alarm goes off. He just grabs whatever he can out of the safe and makes his way out. It makes his way out, and Aki uh, is there in her white convertible to rescue him at the entrance to the building. Now, note on the car. Ray has the thing about the car. Yeah, so the car is a Toyota 2000 GT. So they were filming the movie over in Japan. They were originally going to use a Camaro. And if you're filming the movie in Japan, you should use a Japanese car. And the 2000 GT was, you know, Toyota's attempt to, you know, do, you know, a really nice sports car for, you know, foreign sales and such. They ran into one small problem. Sean Connery is a tall man. That's why I had yeah, the Toyota 2000 GT is does not have a tall cockpit. So what they finally did is they made a quote-unquote convertible. They basically cut off the uh, the roof and they installed basically a fake cover to cover you know where you you would you would think the roof would retract to. They made two of them for the movie. There never was a convertible or removable top model ever made. These were two exclusively just for the movie, so you could fit Sean Connery into this thing. Wow. Kind of brings us to an interesting point in that Sean Connery is like a head taller than everybody else in this movie. Oh, we're getting to a bit on that, actually. There's a great scene uh, a little bit later. Well, the, um, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like Godzilla. You know? It's, it's a little like... A, if you, it, I, I know, that's probably hateful. But he's like, he's like so much... He's busy, I can't get around it. He's a tall guy. He's taller than everybody else in this movie. It's like watching a spy movie starring Godzilla, right? He's huge. He picks him up in the car, and he's he's still not a hundred percent sure, hundred uh, percent sure that this is somebody he can trust. Right. right? It's, yeah. It's, it's worth noting when he goes to see Henderson. You know, Henderson lets him in, and basically Henderson lets him in, and Bond just has his gun on Henderson the entire time until he confirms Henderson's identity by hitting him in his, uh, you know, in his artificial leg. Mm-hmm. So. Henderson thanks I believe thanks him for glad you, you know that he got the right leg when he did that. So you know Bond is uh, you know Bond is a little Bond is a little cagey in this one, a little cagier than we've seen uh in you know uh in, in previous movies about you know who can I trust here. So she leads him she leads him to um she parks the car, gets out of the car, leads him into this building. Yeah, she's trying to take yeah. him someplace and he's like, Nope, we're gonna go here and then she just pulls you know, she, she just got, parks the car and runs. And he chases he her. And then she stops and just smiles at him, and he starts to approach and falls through the floor. Shoop. And takes a merry ride down a stainless steel slide <laughs> to go through a trap door, bam, land in a chair. And an extremely cool mod 60s high-tech office. Uh, prime example, One of the prime examples of Ken Adams' uh, design sensibilities with the, you know the big sort of uh, brass televisions and the low ceilings and the concrete walls. Uh, and he's met by uh, the coolest guy in Japan, Tiger Tanaka. But, but yeah, mm-hmm. this is key. They, they mention T- Tanaka. Nobody knows what Tanaka looks like. You know, he's, his identity is closely guarded in Japan. Um, but we don't know that's necessarily him. There's just this very suave man who has apparently, you know, led James Bond into a trap with a pretty girl. And it's a stainless steel office. There's a comfortable chair. These, um, you know, little brass televisions pivot around. And you see that basically, you know, you see every Bond's every movement up on this point has been carefully tracked and monitored. And he's just so happy to see you, Mr. Bond. And you're obvious, you know, mm-hmm. like the guy has an underground layer of stainless steel slides and a trap door. 
he's clearly the villain. You know, we, we've you know, so you know, Bond. You know, we're, we're, we're obviously meant to think this is not going to go well for Mister Bond. That we're going to expect Mister Bond to do something very unpleasant, like die in a moment. You're just kind of waiting for the you're you're waiting for the the, the automatic electrical manacles of the laser to descend from the ceiling at this point. Which would not be at all. That's not at all impossible. Looking at that. Uh... Yeah, looking at that office. Yeah, the entire set design is meant to make you think of this. I mean, it's 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 very it's very much it has villain layer written all over it. Oh yeah. But so they bond. They, they exchange the code words, introduce each other, and this is remember what the code phrase is. Oh like, yes, it has to say "I love you" to James Bond. Uh, and like, oh, I'm glad we got that out of the way. I've got that out of the way. Uh, yeah, and we're still here. He's like, I'm, I'm gonna stand by this. He's the coolest guy in Japan, right? Uh, now, Tiger observes that, uh, talk a little bit about how Bond got there, and he says to him, his mother warned him uh, not to get into uh, cars with strange girls. Then he says to Bond, uh, you will apparently get into anything with any girl, right? <laughs> He's uh, not wrong. At that, point, at that point, my daughter's watching the movie with us, and she says... You know what? Just because it's true doesn't mean you have to point it out, Tiger. <laughs> Just because it's true, you you don't have to. Doesn't mean you have to say it. So they they chat for a little bit, and then I you know there, there's this big metal door that leads to an elevator, and they're apparently going to go someplace else. And you know the, the door opens up, and it, there's an elevator. There's a guy in there who's about Tanaka's height, and again. Sean Connery is not Tanaka's height. Connery has to kind of duck a little bit to get underneath the door, and you know there, there's you know Tanaka and the other guy are standing there, and you can just see Bond sort of look at them, look at the you know look at the eye line for the door frame, just and it just it just drives home just you know he's what a good head and a half taller than everybody else in the shot. Yeah, and say, again, it's just this beautiful little bit. You know, just you just see Connery sort of you know look at them, look at the you know look at the elevator door, and again you can't see. You can't see all of his forehead at this point. Neat, neat little bit there. And speaking of Tiger Tanaka having what would normally villain signifiers or at least really cool spy stuff, it turns out this guy is so secret in Japan, he doesn't travel above ground. He has his own train. Uh, there's, a, there's a line where he says, I'm, I'm sure your Mr. M has a similar arrangement. <laughs> I always feel like Bob wants to say, you know what? As soon as he finds out about this, yeah, he will have that. <laughs> well, no, he says, but of course, yeah, you do kind of get the impression. Yeah, you do kind of get the impression that, you know, he's, um, you know, that, you know, Tanaka is maybe flexing a little bit on the British Secret Service and Bond is, of course, you know, upholding the honor, you know, on the honor of MI6. And of course, of course, M has his own private train. And, and, and you're damn sure he's going to have one when this is over. <laughs> So um, they examined. So Bond hands over the stuff he gets from Osato's safe, and uh, we find a photo in that safe of uh, of a ship, motor vessel Ningpo. So they're they're gonna look at that picture and try to figure out from uh, the coastline and the diving girls in the picture where that ship was. And in the meantime, they're gonna stay at uh, Tiger's oh, house. But wait, there, there's another detail. There's a photo. Mm-hmm. There there was an order for butter and locks. And there was a microdot, and the microdot is essentially a photo of like you taken by American tourist. Tourist was liquidated. So whatever's in this shot, whoever's behind this felt the need to, you know, eliminate because they took that picture, the picture of the ship. And also, yeah, uh, Bond almost immediately figures out that the order for butter and locks is for liquid oxygen, not smoked salmon. I, I was thinking smoked salmon too, but I was also kind of you know I hadn't had lunch yet either. Yeah. 
So they go to Tiger's house where um, Tiger and Bond are uh, uh, bathed by Japanese women. <laughs> yeah. And Tiger repeatedly explains the superiority of culture in that three or four different women will just bathe you, apparently. Also, he has a staff of women that bathe him. Also, the Japanese men have no chest hair, and they're very proud of this. Of course, Connery has a proverb about how, you know, bird not make nest in bear tree. So, so, uh, so now my, my daughter, who is um, perhaps uh, sensitive to uh, certain gender issues, uh, sees this scene, and I just, uh, I, just can't, I just can't explain this one to her. We're just... We're just kind of stuck with this one, kid. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well, the explanation it was it's sh- the explanation it was 1967. I mean, and your your daughter is not wrong. I mean, you look at this one today, and it's a look. Yeah, I mean, we, we okay. Goldfinger has some problematic bits. This, oh boy, oh well, boy, because you see these you see these assistants of Tanaka several other times throughout the movie. The bikini is a apparently their office uniform as far as we can tell because when they're assisting with the plastic surgery for james bond not making that up they're wearing the same bikinis we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that we'll get to that part <sighs> I, mean, I half expect you know, I, you know again if if, if this, you know if this had been the jimmy bond movies we almost got you know i'm sure Tanak would have said well you know clearly your hugh hefner has a similar you know you know has a similar staffing arrangement or something <laughs> similar. i mean jesus yeah. christ <sighs> yeah, it's uh Yeah. He he he's literally going on about how Japan is more patriarchal and thus has a superior culture and wonders if Miss Moneypenny, because he has spies who know who the MI six people are as well, uh wonders if Miss Moneypenny would do this for Bond. Bond cuts him a look when he says that though. He's defending Penny's honor in a way. Cuts him a look. They uh watch they they uh, they talk while they're being they talk while they're being bathed. And uh, Bond thinks that that uh, you know Japanese don't have the tech to launch this missile. He doesn't think it's the Russians, mm-hmm. you know, who, who could do this. And uh, Bond thinks it might be Spectre, and Tiger agrees with him. Mm-hmm. And they make an arrangement, and what you call it, and uh, Tiger can get him in to see the head of Osaka Chemical the next day. So uh, next day, Aki drives Bond up to Osaka Chemical. Goes back into the same lobby where he had a giant couch fight. Oh, I think, a giant I think... couch fight just the night before. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's all been fixed. The statue's even back. Yeah. Even the statue's fixed. The thing he broke the guy's head with? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's been fixed. The whole thing's been fixed, right? Like nothing in the wet bar. It's, a... it's all been taken care of. So and then a helicopter lands, and uh, two people get out. Uh, German Luciana Paluzzi. Uh, known as Helga Brandt in this movie, and the head of Osada Chemical, Mr. Osada himself. 007 is playing the part of Mr. Fisher from uh, Empire. Has a has an arrangement with Osada Chemical, right? He wants to buy what monosodium glutamate. I think. Uh, it, yeah, Mon- yeah. monosodium glutamate and something else. I think Mr. Osada and his assistant Helga Brandt, uh, who um, who informs Bond that Mr. Osato believes in a healthy chest. <laughs> yes, because uh, we're still we're we're in, we're in Bond here. We are in 1967 Bond territory, so here we are. So that's uh, the fact that they're watching him on X-ray and they can see that he has a concealed weapon. Yeah, so this yeah this whole time weapon. Yeah, so the whole time like yeah also like there's a guy watching with a little CCTV and you see that apparently the CCTV you know that's tracking yeah. him is also has like a you know 
a pistol aimed at him as well that's on you know so it's like you know they've got him under some sort of automated you know some sort of little you know they've got a gun aimed at him the entire time you know they they really have some sort of X-ray of his luggage showing that you know he that he's he's carrying a a gun yeah so I mean it's obviously like you know something's not something's not right here. So they conclude their ostensible business. Honda, as Mr. Fisher leaves, and then as soon as he leaves the office, uh, Osato turns to Helga and says, kill him. So we're back at the uh, the front of the building. Bond is being picked up again by Aki, and they send guys out. They send guys out to machine gun Bond. Yeah, they know where he is. They could kill him in some subtle way. But no, they literally just chase them around with a machine gun. In front of the building. Uh-huh. Um, they're starting right in their parking lot. So it, it does kind of suggest, it, it does sort of suggest a little bit that uh, if you're that uh, head up about killing him, why didn't you just kill him in the, you just kill him in the building? Your building? And then he just never would have come out, right? Uh, or maybe if you kill him out front, maybe you can make out like it's uh, like a gangland slang or something. I don't even know. So again, he's rescued in front of the building by Aki and her. And what we now know is her custom white convertible. And uh, they take off on a chase uh, through the streets of Tokyo. And uh, they call in to Tiger, and uh, Aki requests the usual. So they get out of, time to, they get out of the city, and uh, she calls in a helicopter, big transport, a big transport helicopter, that drops down a magnet, attaches it to the top of the car. And remember, this is the usual reception, right? right? Her work. So they magnetize the top of the car with a gunman in it, lift it off the road, and drop it in the middle of the ocean. So now I do have to question here, um, operational security on the part of the Japanese Secret Service. Because I do think a helicopter, a giant transport helicopter, carrying a car with a magnet is conspicuous. It gets I don't know how secret, I don't know how secret, if this is the usual reception, I don't know how secret you can keep transport helicopters routinely dropping enemy uh, combatants in their automobiles in the water. Well, it gets better. It gets better because Bond is watching this on the little CCTV high-tech little communication console in Aki's car. And yeah. he actually gets to see the transport helicopter drop the car because it cuts away. You see the transport helicopter, the transport helicopter dropping the car, which means clearly Tanaka not only dispatched the transport helicopter, but a second film helicopter to film <laughs> the car being dropped in the ocean in order to impress James Bond. <laughs> Leading to that whole, you know, I love you thing. I'm just, again, maybe, you know, I, you know, I, maybe Tanaka, I mean, maybe Tanaka has a crush on Bond. He's obviously going on his way to basically just put on a show for him here. I'm just, you know. You know, clip about Japanese efficiency, and then Bond says, eh, just a drop in the ocean. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, this is 60s Japan, and they are regularly attacked by 20 story giant monsters, right? So giant magnet helicopters, eh, it's a thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just not that big a deal. Maybe they're not that worried about it. I don't know. Yeah, Tokyo's closed, folks. Oh, no. Sorry, Mazer Tank up front should have told you. Yeah. <laughs> so while they're in the car, on requests, they contact uh, M and have M send Q and little Nelly over. So that's going to be awesome if you hear it in a few minutes. Say and, yeah, and her father, which, of course, I, at this point, I've seen this so many times. I mean, I know it's Q. But I may not have known that the first time through. And and a, a tiger, while they're on their little video phone, also informs Bond that they've got um, that they've got the Ningpo, the boat they were tracking. They've got the Ningpo at the Kobe docks. So uh, Aki and Bond 
make their way to the Kobe docks where the Ningpo is docked. And uh, they they pull up and they're exploring the and they're trying to figure out what's going on with the Kobe docks. They're set upon by thugs, like rough looking waterfront guys. Well, and, this is uh, oh no, this is right after they notice there's a bunch of tanks that say synthetic turpentine that Bond observes has ice cold condensation, which means it's clearly not turpentine; it's liquid oxygen. So sums up. So yeah, then so, immediately someone tries to kill them with a forklift, and when that doesn't work, just dock workers with wrenches and stuff. And this is the part where Connery, uh, he sends Aki, okay, Aki, get out of here. Let uh, Tiger know something's going on. Bond is, like, punching and shooting and, like, killing, like, five or six of these guys. Runs through the the, building, the warehouses at the docks, and he's having, like, this running gun battle fist fight thing. Which is shot from really far away. I oh, don't yeah, know. The, there's a, yeah, there's, like, uh, a the, director, the director talked about that in the behind the scenes. Uh, but he just wanted to kind of ha- try to have a different angle on the, the battle sequence. And this is the part where my wife, while we're watching this movie, actually says the words that he uh, he, he looks like Godzilla compared to these guys. <laughs> Connery, Connery is huge. He's a big dude, and it's just kind of they're all they're all like a head and a half shorter than he is. So um, and eventually um, Bond gets clobbered uh, and captured and taken aboard the Ningpo, where he is uh, awakes to find himself tied in a chair being confronted by Osato's uh, henchwoman, Helga. And I've said it before, and I've said it again. She's more or less the German version of the redhead from Thunderball. And now we get, uh, and he's still trying to pretend like he's an industrial, he's into industrial espionage. Uh, and he's trying to talk Helga into, you know, defecting with him. She walks over to a drawer and pearls out, and it's got like a, a selection of stainless steel implements, right? And she pulls out something called a dermatome. And she tells Bond that plastic surgeons use this to slice off skin. And I'm like, Ugh. and that gave me the willies when I was 10, and it gives me the willies now. There is definitely an undercurrent of the bizarre and the horrible in this movie. Like an implication that uh, if he doesn't say what she wants to hear, she's going to start cutting his skin off with this knife. Kind of a half-assed seduction scene where she's kind of trying to seduce him, and he's kind of trying to seduce her, and he cuts the dress open with the dermatome. Um, it it, it turns it, it turns into smooching really fast, really fast, um, which a, a little fast even for Connery. Oh I know it's a Bond movie and he's Bond, and this is kind of what happens, but it's a little bit unbelievable. We dissolve to uh, the the post smooching scene where they are apparently uh, fleeing in an airplane that Helga's piloting. Yeah, he. This is what he has asked her to do, and she is immediately doing it. It's like holy crap, his seduction powers have worked. Perfectly. Yeah. But then. But then she flips a switch, locks him in his seat, and parachutes out the airplane, pres- presumably <laughs> leaving. Presumably she's been planning all along. After tossing so, in uh, lipstick smoke bomb or something. <laughs> yeah. So she can crash him in a plane. This is kind of the sort of thing where um, you were on a boat. You could have just shot him and dumped him in the water. Yeah, right? I mean, you literally had him completely at your mercy. He was tied up. You could have literally fed him to the fishes. And here we are. And the I thing guess- is, it's not like they fly and, like, he double-crosses her and hands her over to, to Japanese intelligence. Or basically they land and then Tiger Tanaka, you know, flies a helicopter over and picks up the airplane and drops that in the ocean or something. No. She, like, presumably sleeps with him and then loads him into a plane and then decides she's going to crash the plane rather than just having him shot and killed it just doesn't yeah it doesn't make a whole bu- it doesn't make a whole bunch of sense but anyway bond of course being bond fle- frees himself 
uh, manages to land and escape from the plane like right before it blows up. With what appears to be an ostentatious karate chop. Uh, so we're back at Tiger's place, where we find out that the Ningpo uh, has stopped and apparently unloaded some kind of cargo at this one particular Japanese island. So, uh, and this is why Vaughn requested a little Nelly, because we gotta re we're got to do a reconnaissance of this island. Here we have, full stop, the single coolest gadget in the entire Bond series. Full stop, bar none. It's the little helicopter. It's the little gyrocopter known as Little Nelly. And uh, Q has been sent to Japan to uh, assemble this helicopter, to escort the helicopter, to assemble it for Bond. And he says, and I quote, I've had a long and tiring journey, probably to no purpose, and I'm in no mood for your juvenile quips. Um, as, only, as only good old Desmond could say it. And Tiger is, like, stunned as uh, Q and his technicians assemble Little Nelly, a little yellow and white gyrocopter. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it still is, and it always will be. Uh, and Tiger's like, Bond, let me give you a real helicopter, all right? Don't do this. This, this is like a toy helicopter. Toy. This is for children. The helicopter for children, Bond. What are we doing here? The Bond, bless his heart, doesn't listen. It goes off to to execute aerial reconnaissance of this island. Q is ridiculously overarmed as well, because Q explains all of this. Yeah, it's got like flamethrowers and, and flamethrowers, air-to-air missiles, rocket and pods, movie, and you know, yeah. movie camera in his helmet to record the whole thing. I assume he's got a movie camera in his helmet to record the whole thing so Q can show them to his children at Christmas. And so uh, Bond goes to do his reconnaissance, and he's looking around, and he says, ah, there's nothing here but volcanoes. He's about to leave. Uh, this is important, and I'm, my daughter caught this while we were watching. This is important. He's getting ready to leave. Mm -hmm. He hasn't seen anything. Mm -hmm. When four Spectre helicopters move in on him, we know they're Spectre because we know Spectre's the villain. I know that four black helicopters move in on him, uh, telling Bond that he's actually in the right place because now people are trying to kill him. So if they had just let him go, they did. Yeah. So now we have uh, an action sequence where Bond and his little gyrocopter ruthlessly blows apart four helicopters. Four other helicopters. Missiles and flamethrowers and machine guns and little miniature bombs with little tiny parachutes on them. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, it just ruthlessly exterminates four helicopters. Yeah, there's only, there's one, only one problem with this whole sequence. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's very nicely shot. That uh, they made up for all of their other previous, hel you know, the, the helicopter meandering and thunderball because it's you know they're zipping around and the helicopters going daka 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 and you know it. They're, they're, I think there's some kind of helicopter you see in the opening of Mash or darn near to it. So it's kind of like this weird, yeah, it, it's weird. It, it's like a weird trippy opening to Mash, only with you know they're trying to kill James Bond. But anyway, um, so you know they you know drops mines, hits with flamethrowers, launches air missiles that just you know do. You know, off-bore axis, loop back around and blow up the other helicopter and everything. There's one small problem with the whole sequence: is they're helicopters, which means they can stop on a dime and turn around, and autogyros can't exactly. So why they don't just go, oh well, he's in front of us. Why don't we just go to the sides and just pivot and track and blast him rather than zipping around like biplanes? Why? Because it's a James Bond movie and it's more exciting this way. So, but it's yeah. Exactly. That's simple. And the music is just, I, I, lo I love the music. It's just, you know, the, I, I, you know, the music is just, yeah, the music just fits just beautifully. I mean, it's just, you know, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's not like ominous horns or anything, which is this, you know, this, it's not lightweight, but it's just this, it just threads through it all very, very nicely. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, so it's, it's a great little sequence. 
Now, we cut from this to uh, a Russian capsule, a Russian space capsule in orbit, which, again, I'm a space, I was a space wonk even then. This doesn't look anything like the capsules the Russians were actually flying. But the rocket comes up and captures the Russian capsule oh, no, that's in orbit. This right? is one thing that bugs me about – this is one thing that bugs me. is Because you see the Russian launch and it's clearly – It's a Titan II missile with the Gemini capsule Yeah, it's clear that it. you can see a little bit of a U.S. road sign and I'm pretty you – know, I'm like, ah, those darn Soviets, they're commies. Yeah, they're commies. They're st- not only have they stolen the Gemini design, not only have they stole the Titan II design, they stole the palm tree design. Yeah. It's a Titan II rocket with a Gemini capsule with, pa- with palm trees. Obviously, they spared no expense in this movie. I don't understand why they couldn't have at least found a better set of stock footage. Well, this is the weird part. Later, there's another launch, and they there's a rocket that is clearly not a Gemini on the on the front top of it. I haven't figured out what that launch sequence was yet. And when they launched the second Jupiter capsule, so it's like, why didn't you use the why did you use the one that clearly has a Gemini capsule on it for the Russian one that looks nothing like a Gemini capsule. I mean, we knew what Soyuz capsules looked like at that point. Well, did like an like a American, like did NASA know, did the Air Force know, and did they know in a way that... Like, oh, I mean, I'm producers... sure if you, if you went to the Soviet Union and said, could we get footage of one of your rocket launches to use on our James Bond movie? The Russians would have basically, you know, the Russians would have sicked the Bulgarians on them. So, okay, that's fair. You know, you probably... Uh, but still, it was just, it was, yeah, it's weird. So they capture the, the Russian capsule in orbit, they land... And then they land in, and here we are now, screen debut, the mm-hmm. volcano layer. Mm-hmm. Rocket comes down, and one of the volcanoes that Bond was looking at, what we think is a puddle of green water in the, in the crater of the extinct volcano, slides open. And this giant stainless steel rocket lands like an Elon Musk SpaceX rocket, like a 60s, like a 40s or 50s Flash Gordon rocket, lands inside the volcano layer which has got to be one of the most, if not the most spectacular single sets ever constructed. So Sean, wherever you are, if you were a little overshadowed by the sets and the special effects, I feel you, I do, because this was flipping awesome. And it's all like stainless steel and stressed concrete and bare rock, and, uh, and it lands. And here we find out that, it's, um, that this is a specter plot, because we cut to a scene with a pair of, I think we are led to believe, Chinese agents who are talking to the leader of Spectre in his in his room in his apartment inside the volcano layer. He compliments the, the the agents on their technology and they compliment him on his usage of their technology and that this whole thing is designed to that they are paying him and his organization to start a war uh, between the United States and Russia. Then we see uh, the henchman, Hans. Who's like this big, who's even bigger than Connery, this wall of blonde German beef, black turtleneck, and uh, and the villain has Hans feed the piranhas. Because, of course, there's piranhas. There's a stainless steel bridge over a little pond that has piranhas in it. And he says, strip a man to the bone in 30 seconds. It's like, Ugh. So we see Hans. Uh, so this is like Chekhov's piranhas, right? If you see the piranhas in the wall, they got to use them by the end of the movie. The villain... And, you know, at this point, we all know it's Blofeld, but I'm going to call him the villain. And the villain talks to Osato and talks to Helga and says, you see this, you, you showed us this uh, this x-ray of this guy's gun. This is a Walter PPK. Who uses a Walter PPK? One man, James Bond. Bond. That's who uses a Walter PPK, and you let him go. So he's pretty, uh, he's pretty upset. And Osato walks across the bridge and leaves, and then Helga steps up onto the bridge, 
and the villain presses a foot pedal under his desk. And the bridge gives way. Poor Helga falls into the water and is uh, eaten by piranhas. She, like, screams once, goes under, and that's it for Helga, right? She's gone. She's dead. Which uh, still kind of still kind of gives me the willies, to be honest with you. And I think Bluefield said, kill James Bond! Kill Bond, now! So now Tiger is taking uh, Bond to possibly the coolest place in all of Japan. Uh, Tiger's private ninja school which is apparently built into, like, a, a, a phenomenal Japanese castle. Oh, and yeah, it's, like, it's, um, it's Himeji Castle, um, which I think you've, we've seen wiped out, I think, in Godzilla vs. King Kong and at least one other Godzilla movie offhand. I am absolutely sure. So um, so here we are, and it's ninjas, and they're doing martial arts and, you know, climbing and swords and machine gun training. It, it's just... Uh, it's just it's it's the training scene in the Bond movie with ninjas, and it's wow, just wow! It's awesome. It's just so cool. And now I feel like uh, a bit like Chris Farley. Remember that scene in that movie? God, that was so cool. But that's the best I can do with this one, guys. It's just a uh, yeah. And then uh, Tiger takes and then to double down on the cool, Tiger takes Bond into into the school, takes Bond into the school where he shows them a uh, a table full of rocket guns like a whole table full of armaments where the 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 shells all have little holes in the back for jet propulsion it's called a gyrojet those are actual those are actually what they looked like they were not yeah they they were kind of a thing in the in the 60s uh late 50s early 60s they did not really pan out which is why you don't you know this is why you don't you can't go buy rocket bullets at your you know local store or, or maybe they wink, wink, didn't pan out, wink, wink. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Tiger has rocket guns, and he also has uh, cigarettes with little with little mini rockets in them that you can kill a man at a distance with. Uh, so we've got ninjas and uh, rocket guns, and just uh, you know, oh my god, it's awesome. And then we get to the part where uh, we're gonna have to infiltrate. Tiger and his people are they're going to have to infiltrate the island where they think the bad guys are. So they're going to move in Tiger's men and they're going to marry like uh, the, the, the AMA girls, AMA, the AMA girls, the, the Fisher girls. And Bond, too, is going to have to marry one of these uh, these AMA girls. And, and before he does that, though, he's going to have to become Japanese. Yeah. So now we've got the, uh, This is the second racist, uh, second most racist Jane Bond. Yeah, I just can't take this one seriously though because it's like he's very much never going to look Japanese. Okay, it's it's a really by terrible I don't mean terribly racist. It's a bad yellow face job. Like he has slightly bushier eyebrows. I mean, it, basically, you would look at this and go, you know, that's I that's I guess that's serviceable for a Romulan cosplay. If you didn't have a lot of time for the for the the IP bits. I mean, yeah, that's I the thing. Right. I mean, the wig makes him look more like Spock than it does. Make yeah, him look I yet. mean, that's the thing. And now again, mind you, the people doing you know the the the. The, sur- the the surgery or the application I mean it's not surgery the application of prosthetics or whatnot is handled by Aki and the bikini clad staff from the bath scene earlier same so bikinis I want to point so out it's, so it's kind of sexist and it's kind of racist and there's no way in hell Sean Connery is ever going to look Japanese but here we are no the other fun part um, is also is watching Sean Connery speak Japanese with a Scottish accent yes 
just like he spoke Russian with a Scottish accent some years later. After Bond is made Japanese, down with Aki for the evening, an assassin creeps in uh, and lowers, opens a vial of poison and drops uh, a little drop of poison down a slender thread, presumably to kill Bond in his sleep. But Bond rolls over, then Aki rolls over, and then the poison touches Aki's lips instead of Bond's, and she dies. And I'm trying and to think, is this uh, the first time... Sad. Is this the first time we see this particular poisoning technique? I mean, I'm pretty sure it's this movie that Gross Point Blank is written. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to think if we've seen this in other... And again, I, I, I should say Western. I'm, I can't think that it wasn't possibly used in some kung fu movies at some point. but Or maybe that was more ninja movies, which you know came along like 17, 15 years later. So now uh, Aki's dead and Bond has murdered the assassin. And it's very sad. So we move on to the uh, marriage ceremony. Where Tiger has promised Bond is going to marry an Amma fisherman who has a quote unquote a face like a pig. So there's a, a there's an extended sequence where we go through some of the some of the grace and the poetry and the pageantry of a uh, like this group Japanese wedding. Yeah, not not, uh, they really needed to do the wedding, but I guess just in case anyone was spying on them. Well, you got to make it look. Uh, yeah, I figured in case anybody was spying on him, you got to make it look good. And turns out that the person turns out that the person um, Bond is marrying does not have a face like the pig. And probably that was just Tiger trolling Bond. And he's now officially married. Her name is and... spoken, despite it being a Bond girl name. From The, the name is from oh, the book. Oh, oh, the name is from the book. Name? Right. I, I told Mary, I told my daughter the name, and she was not amused. Just to say it. Kissy Suzuki. Kissy Suzuki. That's a name, kids. Kissy Suzuki. Dicko Anderson. <laughs> God love me and Fleming. So they, um... They infiltrate the island, but the fishermen and the fisher girls in Bond, who's like hunched over, practically doubled over at the waist, trying to look shorter, infiltrate the island, and they go to Kissy's house, and she um, spurns his advances because they're not married. You give, he gave the priest a fake name. They're not married, and you're going to sleep over there, Mr. Bond. <laughs> this is not a honeymoon. This is business. This is not a honeymoon, Mr. Bond. This is business, and you're over there. So uh, at, at night, Tiger comes up to uh, Kissy's house and wakes Bond. Turns out the Americans have moved up the launch date of their next mission, and we're all out of time. Kissy knows that an, an Ama girl has just died a couple of days before at this particular spot on the island. Like, she went into this cave and came back out dead, and nobody knows why. This kind of sets off Bond's spider sense. And he gets in a boat with Kissy, and they go to this cave, and then Bond smells something. Oh, my God, it's gas. And they jump off the side of the boat just in time to avoid being gassed to death in this cave. With phosgene. Yes. Blonde later says this is phosgene, which is a, it was a chemical agent used in World War I. Um, weirdly, the odor, yeah, odor resembles that of freshly cut hay or grass. Yeah, this is some of that nasty World War I stuff that makes you cough up your own lungs. So they jump out of the boat, they swim out of the cave, and they decide to uh, walk up to the top of the volcano to investigate what's going on. And Bond and Kissy uh, walk up, uh, and it's a, it's a, a, like a nice little interlude, kind of romantic, where they're walking up the other side of the mountain. They get to the top of the mountain, and they see a helicopter head down into the crater and then vanish. So they keep climbing. And while they're doing this, the U.S. launches its next mission. Everybody's on pins and needles. Everybody's on tenterhooks because uh, what's going to happen? Is this going to be World War Three here? Now, and we cut back to Bond and Kissy, and he chucks a rock towards that pool in the center of the crater, and it clangs. It's metal. And it opens, and the, 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 the pool, quote-unquote, opens up. 
So 007 sends Kissy back down the mountain to get Tiger and to get help, and he uh, uh, and pulls his ninja gear on, and Bond climbs into the crater. With suction cups. He has, like, suction ninja suction – he has, you know, ninja suction cups on, like, his knees and elbows and uses that to, like, climb along the, the, the ceiling there. It's cool. I mean, it's cool. Now, at, at, this, at this point – uh, at this point, I want to say we, we kind of do what we do on, on this show. We're kind of sarcastic, and we kind of, you know, we joke around a little bit. But I do want to emphasize again that we genuinely love this material. And Sean, even though Sean, even though he's unhappy, uh, unhappy making this movie, he's ready to move on. Uh, he's still James freaking Bond in this movie. All right. Yeah. At this point, we've got past... cool, and he's ruthless, and he's got all the animal magnetism. And uh, how to make James Bond better? He's a ninja now. Ninja gear and the suction cups, and it just. Um, the movie is basically wall-to-wall awesome. Even though Connery, like we said, is kind of unhappy at this point, he is still super cool, and he is still the anchor man for this operation. And at this point, we are pretty much full blood. Okay, we are out of travelogue territory. I mean, okay, at this point, pretty much, once we hit the island, it's James Bond inserted undercover with a local operative, with local operatives trying to figure out what's going on. So we're, we're kind of, in a sense, kind of in Dr. No territory here, which I yeah. understand was one of Dahl's... Dahl couldn't find much in the book to use, given what he had to work with, so he kind of went back to kind of a... It's kind of a Dr. No-esque sort of plot. So pretty much, we, we're done with the travel log, and we are in firmly... There's, you know, Spectre's up to no Bond good. territory. Yeah. So, and it... The pace at this point picks up quite a bit. I mean, actually, I'll take the back. That's not fair. You Already know. brisk pace redoubles is what happens. Well, I think it's briskly paced anyway. Uh, your mileage may vary. So Bond infiltrates the volcano lair, finds where the captured astronauts are being held, busts them out, puts on an astronaut suit, and tries to um, and tries to get in the Spectre rocket before it launches. Kissy, in the meantime, is swimming back to uh, alert Tiger what's going on. Dodges an enemy helicopter firing machine guns at her in the water. 007 almost makes it into the Spectre rocket before he's caught at the last minute with his uh, spacesuit's refrigeration unit still attached. A technical detail that the villain from his lair observes on closed circuit television, calls a halt to the launch, has the reserve astronaut sent in, and has this astronaut, Bond, brought to the control room. Now, we are building up to one of the great reveals, I think, in the history of Bond, in the history of 60s movies. This is a classic movie moment we're building up to here. We go to the control room, and we see the man himself. They've been building up to this. Uh, Dr. No in the first movie is working for Spectre. And from Russia with Love, you see the hands petting the infamous, wet, the infamous white cat. In Thunderball, you see another scene with Spectre operatives reporting to somebody petting the infamous white cat. You've been seeing the infamous white cat scenes with the villain in this movie he spins the chair around it is the the narrow jacket and the smooth head and the scarred right eye it's ernst stavro blofeld played by the inimitable donald pleasance and blofeld says i thought you were dead mr bond and bond says yes this is my second life and um and then blofeld name checks the title you only live twice mr bond Pleasance and he's creepy and menacing and this is it's Blofeld. It's freaking Blofeld. Inspector launches its rocket ship to chase the American capsule in orbit. So we're basically counting down to World War Three here. Bond observes Blofeld. Again, well, okay, again here, Blofeld really just shoot him on should just shoot him on sight. And two shots back of the head, we're done, right? But Blofeld, I guess, wants to because Bond has been Spectre's nemesis for like four three or four movies now. I guess he wants to enjoy and gloat a little bit and revel in the moment. Like, I'm in the middle of destroying the world here, Mr. Bond. I'll kill you in a little while when I've got the time to enjoy it. really want to focus and dig in here. And there's a certain point of, like, look, you know, I mean, it's like, 
I mean, you can kill Bond or you can make Bond suffer. And okay, you know, we are about to accumulate our, you know, culminate our master scheme, destroying Western civilization for money. So you can watch, and we'll make you watch, and then we'll kill you. Yes, because you could do nothing, Mister Bond. You are completely in my power. He doesn't actually say this, but you know, but that's the that's that's the gist of it. But Bond observes Blofeld tell Hans that after after the Spectre ship captures the American capsule, just blow them up in orbit. Oh, we should point about Hans. Hans. Hans is like Same. a foot, Hans is like a foot taller than Sean Connery. Yeah, Hans. Yeah, Hans is a foot taller than Sean is, so he's huge. And he gives Hans the key to the exploder button and says, here's what you do, right? And Bond sees this. Exploder button multiple times. Yeah, because really... Exploder button, which yeah. is a phrase I love. Because apparently so they're just going to self-destruct... Uh, yeah, they're apparently planning to just self-destruct the space capsule after it captures the American spacecraft. Don't even bother recovering it. And the, the Spectre space capsule this time actually says CCCP on the side. It is not an unidentified third-party capsule. They are definitely trying to make the Americans think it's the Russians. So, but the cavalry has just rode up and it's uh, Kissy and Tiger and his army of ninjas, and they're rolling up in the crater. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically at this point, all hell breaks loose. The ninjas break into the volcano lair. They rappel down from the top of the crater, like 20, 30 guys at once coming down on ropes from the top. And there's machine guns and explosions and katana battles. And it, it's, it's mayhem. This is, um, and I'll, I'll call it, this is one of the all-time great action scenes, period. Because it's just total chaos inside the volcano lair. Yeah, I mean, this is commandos storming the volcano base. Okay. All hell breaks loose. It's awesome. I mean, this, if, you haven't seen, if you're listening to this show and haven't seen this movie, why have you not seen this movie? Uh, feel free to pause here and go watch this movie and then come back. Bodies are flying and crap is exploding and somehow Bond gets out of the control room. Well, actually, what happens is he takes, he asks for a last cigarette, and we know that cigarette has a little mini rocket loaded in it. So he smokes the cigarette, fires the rocket uh, at a technician. Bam! Uh, the rocket explodes in this guy's chest, and then uh, all hell breaks loose in the control room, and Bond gets out. And they're trying to figure out how to. Get, he talks to Tiger on the floor of the volcano there, trying to figure out how to get back up there. Because we're running out of time. And they see a bunch of technicians coming down a flight of stairs, and Bond realizes there's another way. There's another way up there. So Bond takes those stairs, and he's back in Blofeld's personal office with the piranha and the stainless steel bridge. And there's Hans. Hans is standing there. He starts walking towards Bond, and we cut back and forth. Hans is walking for towards Bond. Bond is walking towards Hans, and it's like it's on. And then it's like uh, Bond and Hans have this tremendous, like, fisticuffs battle. Bam, bam, bam. And then finally, uh, Bond flips Hans into the piranha pool, which I I think we all knew this was how Hans was going to end up. So Hans gets eaten by a piranha, and there's Connery in maybe the single most ice-cold moment of his entire tenure as Bond as he stands there over Hans being eaten alive by piranha and says, Bon Appetit. Which I, 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 that's like, that's that's the perfect Connery Bond moment right there. Bond makes his way back into the control room, uses the exploder button, blows up the Spectre rocket before it can capture the American spacecraft, thereby saving the world. But wait, there's... No, we're, no, we're leaving out some details there, but just go watch the movie. It's, well, it's oh, but, amazing. Well, no, so Blofeld, you know, Blofeld... It turns out there's an exploder, well, knife switch... For the uh, entire volcano base as well. Yeah, so some Blo- Blo- yeah. Yeah. at some point in, in the melee, Blofeld's about to shoot Bond, and 
Tanaka, you know, puts a throwing star into his hand and Blofeld speeds, you know, wounded Blofeld speeds away on his monorail. His, his personal chrome steel monorail. We do have differing definitions of success in this uh, in this age and time we live in. But if you have a personal chrome steel monorail inside your personal vol- volcano layer, it's hard to say you're not a success. Blofeld, beaten, his master scheme thwarted, throws a switch, self-destructing the volcano layer. And it looks like, just to me, like the Spectre figured out some way to turn an inactive volcano active because it starts exploding, and by the time Bond and Tiger and all the survivors have escaped, there's lava running down the sides of the mountain, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, the whole thing goes up, and again, I don't know if this was, like, just stock footage, or they decided, yeah, volcano erupt, I don't know. But yeah, the lava is pouring out of the volcano. Now And now we're back to where Spectre can actually reactivate inactive volcanoes, which is a scary level of technology. At that point, you're like, Um, if you can do that, why don't you just basically, you know, you'll give us one zillion dollars or we will basically simultaneously erupt the entire ring of fire. (laughs) Exactly. Or or maybe that's the great unmade Sean Connery Bond film, right? Maybe like the next one was Blofeld trying to act. I don't know. So now we're at the end. We are at the classic end of the Bond movie where we're in the ocean. And it's Bond and the girl, and they're in a raft. And, well, we survived. So, you know, Bond looks over at Kissy and says, how about that honeymoon, baby? Kissy says, yeah, why not? So uh, we've just saved the world and survived the exploding volcano. And, of course, the first thing uh, Bond wants to do is bone this chick. But he proceeds to lean over, starts smooching on her. We're gearing up. And, and at this point, and, I, and I'll leave the symbolism to our audience, the submarine, the submarine. I assume that Penny and and M were in at the beginning of the film. The submarine rises from the ocean, <laughs> lifting the raft out of the ocean with Bond and Kissy still in it. And we cut to the inside of the of the sub, and it's M and it's Penny. And M says to Penny, uh, "I think it's time we debrief Commander Bond." And Penny, who's pretty put out by the whole thing, says, "Yes, sir, I think it is." We wrap up You Only Live Twice with a Bond on a raft and a girl on top of a submarine. Uh, and all is right with the world. Yeah, and this uh, this movie is just kind of... And like we take the piss a little bit around here, but it's uh, pretty much just wall-to-wall awesome. And it is kind of sexist in that 1967 kind of way, but uh, I don't think it's as egregious as probably parts of Thunderball or Goldfinger were. Yeah, and it's just fun. This is just... And then Sean may not have been uh, happy in the part at this point, but he's still Sean, and he's still charming and ruthless, and you know charismatic and magnetic and everything. And this is still an enormously entertaining movie. What do you guys think? I generally, overall, I like it. It's got some parts that have not aged well, but on balance, yeah. I mean, and and the, it is not unique in that respect, and it is not no. you know, I mean, again, we we. You know, we we've done some others that have maybe a that haven't aged as well either. But overall, it's 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 pretty entertaining, and it's pretty much. I mean, you've got it's Spectre stealing spaceships from their secret volcano lair. You cannot really get much more James Bond than that, right? I mean, it, it is it is you know. So I mean, it's it's it is worth your time to go see. You just you know go in knowing, and you should know this by now. Watching any movie from '67, certainly any. James Bond movie from that time period, there's going to be some parts that have not aged well because nothing from that, you know, nothing from movies in that time period has necessarily aged well. I mean, if you know that going in, then you just, you know, you can enjoy yourself. You know? Would probably any other movie from 1967 
would probably have similar issues with uh, with gender issues, similar uh, probably similar racial problems. And the only reason we're really uh, worried about it with Bond is because that's the movie from 1967 we're still watching. This, like Ray says, it's very far from unique in this. Yeah, so you've got oh, Sean is gone. Yeah, you know, other movies that came out in 1967. You had Casino Royale. Weirdly enough, Bond spoof. Yeah, so which of, is horrendous. Son of Godzilla, get Valley of the Dolls, Cool Hand Luke, The Graduate, uh, To Serve with Love, The Producers, In the Heat of the Night. I mean, some of these have aged better than others. Ah, you also had, oh, you had In Like Flint this year, that year as well. And you had The Jungle Book. Probably has its own set of issues. Yeah, so, and, you know, so again, it's like, but, you know, if you, as long as you know, you know, again, you know, you should know what. I mean, at this point, if you've seen a, John, a, a Sean Connery James Bond movie, you have some idea what you're going to expect. If you don't want to see that, why the blankety blank did you put the disc in the player or hit the streaming service? Yeah, uh, you, you, know, you, you know what you're getting here. Uh, if, if you've never seen a Connery Bond movie, yeah, some of it may come as, as a 21st century viewer, some of it may come as a shock to you. But if you've watched any of these, you know what it's like, and it is what it is, and uh, just forgive them. Forgive them their time. Times and just enjoy the movie. Um, and, and now we come back to the part where uh, Sean Connery is gone now. Uh, this is the first Connery Bond movie I've watched since uh, Sean passed last uh, late in 2020. Um, makes me uh, it makes me sad that we live in a world without Sean Connery anymore. Um, because it's not just Bond; it's, uh, Untouchables, and he was Henry Jones in Last Crusade, and he was in Time Bandits. And he was in uh, Hunt for Red October, and he was in The Rock, and just uh, one terrific, indelible performance after another. And he was uh, ruggedly handsome and uh, a sex symbol for decades, and a terrific actor, and uh, we shall truly never see his like again. So, uh, Sean, uh, wherever you are, uh, if you get podcasts there, if you happen to listen to this one... um, you know what? We loved you. We really did. And uh, I think we're sorry you're gone. But as we were watching this, uh, my daughter observed that, you know, uh, he left something behind. There's uh, all these great performances and all these entertaining movies and all these terrific memories that as long as people watch movies, as long as people watch movies, they're going to be watching Bond movies. As long as people watch movies, they're going to be watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So uh, Sean uh, may not be with us anymore, but he uh, he's not ever going to be forgotten. Take this chance. Go find your favorite Sean Connery movie. Put that in the DVD player. Pop yourself a bag of popcorn and um, have yourself a grand old time. I am uh, Eric, your grumpy number six, as always. That's um, number six, all lowercase letters, at agentsof.cool. Uh, I'm Stacy. Uh, I can be reached at Mrs. Peel, M-R-S-P-E-E-L, all lowercase no period, at agentsof.cool. And I'm Ray at agentsof.cool. As always, thank you for listening. If you've got anything to say, please let us know. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.
the agents of cool do not have any kind of official email or office newsletter but if uh, anyone out there wants to draw a picture of godzilla in a tuxedo with a laser watch like a bond <laughs> movie like godzilla as godzilla is ian fleming's james bond um, if anyone out there wants to make up that fan art for us, I'll make sure we have an office newsletter just to put that art in 